Hey everyone, Owen Good here, welcoming you back to the Founders Forge podcast. Here on the Founders Forge, we talk to founders from all stages and get to know them, their projects, and the lessons they've been learning along the way. Every now and then, we dive deep into the weeds on specific topics with specialists from a variety of disciplines. Today, Marcus and I are interviewing one such specialist, Steve Pearson. Starting a company is a lot like jumping out of an airplane. Things tend to go better if you've got a parachute. And Steve describes himself as a parachute maker, or at least a parachute advisor. Steve's an intellectual property consultant who helps founders learn about IP and how it relates to their projects. An engineering background coupled with an incredibly diverse skill set gives Steve the experience to help those would-be entrepreneurs learn what's out there and how it might affect them. So this is a pretty thick topic, and I would forgive you if you decide to skip this one because it's not really your speed. However, if you are in the founder space at all, this is pretty important stuff to know. Alrighty, intellectual property, trademarks, copyrights, patent law, let's do it. Steve, it's a, it's a pleasure to have you on today. Well, thank you, Owen. I'm really excited about this. I am uh, i don't get a lot of interviews. I have one about every other year. And so uh, it's just a great thing to be able to talk and actually have people want me to speak. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we're excited to hear from you. So what, tell us a little bit about your background. Uh, what do you do? What do you- well, I do a lot of things. Uh, people have a hard time putting a finger on it. Um, a lot of people think of me as an intellectual property attorney. I'm not. Uh, other people think that uh, I do things like uh, patent research and market research, which is true. But it, but it all came from a long background of doing a lot of different things that uh, I have pulled together and developed uh, not so much an expertise in any one thing, uh, as much as a, a little bit of knowledge in a lot of different areas that I can pull uh, things that would normally be a little bit disparate into a cohesive thought, or at least I think so. And so uh, it's kind of exciting that uh, people recognize that as an opportunity because I really enjoy what I do. Um, I guess let's maybe start out with uh, a little bit of your background, how you got to where you are. Um, that might be a great place to start. You know, where to start is the uh, the question. And so I, I guess I would start out, uh, I, you know, when I was growing up, I was really interested in mechanical things. I can remember working with my dad on his uh, small block Chevy, making the next improvement uh, to uh, give it more horsepower, you know, do whatever he wanted to do. And so I really enjoyed working with mechanical things. And so that eventually translated to me uh, after I graduated from high school, going into the military, uh, the Navy specifically. And so I learned uh, about things that I really enjoyed, uh, which was uh, electronics, all kinds of various old and new electronics. And uh, all of those were in support of uh, nuclear propulsion systems. And so the excitement there was uh, I was tying the electronics love that I was developing a passion for back to my old mechanical interest across all sorts of different areas that it takes to make things move through water. And so, um, you know, lots of different things are involved there. And it was very exciting to not only learn about each one individually, but how they interrelate. And so that's very exciting. And so uh, after getting my double E degree, uh, after I got out of the Navy, I uh, turned that into working at a, a semiconductor manufacturer here in Austin very expensive equipment, making very expensive chips. Um, And so uh, I really continued that interface of mechanical and electrical, new technology, old technology forward there. And uh, skipping forward to uh, my last job before this one, um, I, I was able to work with a lot of different companies, large and small, 
helping them tie together uh, these kinds of questions related to mechanical and electrical technologies into the market and their intellectual property and how that related to their innovation and their long-term strategy. And so did you anticipate going into more of a consulting type space? Was that kind of the end goal? Like, let me work for myself, consult people, use my expertise, or is that something that just kind of happened upon you? Well, it it happened to me. I I told this last company that I was working for, uh, that was the last company I'll ever work for, um, no fault of theirs. Uh, But uh, I told them that essentially I felt like I was uh, being forced out, uh, but I resigned. And the reason I said that was, is that that was the third company I had worked for. And I had just felt that, um, you know, after not finding that magic combination inside of a company after three times uh, having work history uh, with these different companies that I just wasn't hitting the right note. And so I basically said, uh, I'm going to have to be my own boss. That's not the direction I originally started out. I originally was going to be a one company man and uh, stay with that same company forever until I retired. Uh, Yeah, it's boring, uh, definitely not in the zone for what happens mostly today. Uh, But nonetheless, I've been worth three different companies now doing very different things. And this last company I work with uh, is my own company. And, uh, you know, if something goes wrong, I know exactly uh, where the boss is and, you know, who to blame. Uh, But it's been really exciting. And I I really don't want to ever go back to working for someone else. I've really... I think hit my stride and I get to talk to people like you that I would have never met otherwise. So uh, life is good here. Yeah. Well, and, that, and that's a great comment about how it's not really the thing to do anymore as far as being a one company man. There's a lot of thoughts as to why that is. I'm curious if you want to weigh in on that. You know, somebody has described it to me years ago and I don't even remember who it was. Maybe it's just a general comment that, you know, our ability to be entrepreneurs now and have a a company in your laptop, so to speak, and a phone that you can go anywhere in the world. And as long as you have the internet, have a company. Um, Mm -hmm. That's a little oversimplistic, but in some ways not. And so I I think the opportunity has developed and certainly um, the risk on the the jumper side, I like to use a parachute analogy. You know, uh, for me, it took three different companies to say, Steve, it's time to pull the ripcord and jump out of the plane with a really big uh, actually small parachute, but we can get into that later. And so uh, it's really exciting to me that, you know, someone basically called me out and forced me to do something that I love. I just didn't know it at the time. So it worked out really well. I, I didn't think the companies were doing the things that they needed to do to grow themselves, to invest in themselves. Uh, I'm a long-term strategic thinker. And so I, I like to invest in the future and I don't like to look behind me too much Uh, Of course, we need a little history to give us some guidance about where we're headed in the future, but I don't like to dwell on it. And so for me, I felt that companies uh, were basically living quarter to quarter, client to client, even week to week at times. And and I felt very frustrated by that because there's no investment in the future. And in this capitalistic society, you know, your competitors are potentially doing all the things that I'm talking about and being strategic, investing in themselves, planning a little bit. And, and by the way, everybody that doesn't do that is going to eventually fail. And so I, I don't like to fail. And uh, I, I hope my company doesn't fail because I'm going to eat my words if that happens very soon. But uh, nonetheless, I, I'm doing all the things that I have been preaching about for a long time. And occasionally I get to talk about them with people like you all. Well, so do we want to kind of transition into uh, what I think is the most interesting part of this conversation and why we brought you on, which is 
the the concept of innovation as as ideas that can actually be captured and written down and uh, defined and then compared against other things. And that's, you know, what we'd call intellectual property, right, is something that can be measured, um, can have a specific value and can ultimately be protected in, in different ways. What would you, I guess, maybe the first question is, what would you consider intellectual property? How would you define intellectual property as someone who's been doing some stuff in this space for a little bit? Well, that's a loaded question. Uh, not being an attorney, let me put it like this. My, my view of intellectual property is much broader than, than most of the attorneys I know. Um, most of the attorneys I know would consider, you know, just like anybody on the street that you would meet, patents are the first thing that would come out. That's the first word that everybody likes to throw out there. And then you have these wannabe uh, things that are called copyrights and trademarks, et cetera. And, and those come up occasionally, and certainly attorneys talk about them, not as much generally, uh, for various reasons. Um, but then you get to me, <clears throat> and I start talking about things like uh, a little bit more about trade secrets, trade dress, and other things uh, such as uh, you know employee agreements and non-disclosure agreements and things that are really trying to protect your intellectual property. And so I, I think they're so important that they're worth throwing into your intellectual property um, as an asset because uh, ultimately uh, the statistics are that intellectual property today, the last number I saw is 87%, uh, write that down, 87% of the standard and poor's 500 valuation. And so that means that swishes on the side of shoes, a, a golden arch outside of a restaurant and all these other 498 companies have an incredible value, more than most people would anticipate in intellectual property. And so they're, they're not certainly all patents. There are a whole bunch of different things, but nonetheless, it really catches people off guard that, wow, my, my company valuation isn't making hamburgers or shoes. It's all these other things that surround that and create the impression of people know me before they ever see my product um, that just have tremendous value. And so protecting it is just essential in today's world. Is that something that people come to you for is just like getting a more comprehensive understanding of where their value is and as far as intellectual property and, and things that they can, um, whether it's put on the books as some type of you know, monetary equivalent or something that they need to protect? Is that is that common or is it usually just a, hey, patents, 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 you know? <laughs> people come to me, open the door and they say, Something about patents, like I need to get a patent is the most common one, or I'm getting sued for patent infringement. That's another very common one. And so that's the moment I stick my foot in the door and I say, well, let's address that problem. And oh, by the way, as we kind of work through that, I kind of assess some other things about their trade secrets, trade dress, their market, their future valuations, and all these things that interrelate, but don't necessarily appear like they work together until you kind of put pen to paper and say, oh, these things are connected. Let's talk through a couple kind of examples of conversations or, or states that I've seen startups and founders in um, and, and kind of say, like, what does this look like? And, and how do you move through understanding uh, these concepts in, in, in that context? So the first one I would bring up, which being a software consultancy, we get a lot is someone comes to us, they're like, hey, we want to develop this. Oh, do we need to patent our software? And you get that, you know, <laughs> quite often. And 
you know, my response is generally a it's not it's if at least not worth your time and money to try and patent this software it very likely could be even more detrimental to you because of the way that patents work, the disclosures you have to make. Um, for you, uh, having worked in this space, what would you say to someone who's in the software space and are trying to protect their intellectual property you know, regarding patents and then other things? Because I think the heart of that question is, well, how can I make sure that I have you know, a nice moat a, protect, a protective thing for me to move my business forward without competitors coming in and, and moving me out of the, out of the business. Well, sure, sure. Uh, you know, one of the, the biggest deciding factors of whether a patent is appropriate is uh, certainly software is kind of in its own regime for whether it's appropriate or not. We can get into that in a minute if you want. Uh, but the, the biggest question often comes up uh, for founders and, you know, they only have $20,000 or $10,000 to get their business started. And, and when I start bringing out a little bit of trivia and firing it at them, such as, you know, to get a patent application, a real utility patent application that is done and submitted to the United States Patent and Trade Office, it, all those costs uh, and filing fees are going to add up to about $10,000. And oh, by the way, uh, at some point after that, maybe a year and a half to three years down the road, you're going to incur at least another 5,000, 10,000 or more. You know, these are just kind of general ballpark swings here. Um, and oh, by the way, if you haven't got enough money to support that, plus do your website hiring, uh, travel and all these other things that business owners can spend their money on. And there's plenty, as you both know, um, then it's probably not worthwhile to do it. And we talk uh, then at that point about how to kind of game the system to buy themselves some time so that they can kind of keep their idea patentable should they develop a large income flow in the future and uh, at the same time protect all of their uh, technology. And in the software, you know, that's a whole unique field. Um, whether to get a software patent is uh, interesting. Um, one of the things that I kind of help uh, establish a baseline and blow people's uh, bubbles up is that 95% of the issued patents, this is after they've already been granted, of, of the U.S. patents never make more the money, uh, more money than what they cost to earn them or, you know, to gain them. And so when they think, wow, I have 5% chance of actually making my money back, much less being successful, that's a pretty small number. And oh, by the way, I've still got this application thing to write up and do and the odds drop, you know, by about half, you know, you're looking around two to two and a half percent of the people starting out are going to make money. And software may be less than that. I really don't know. Uh, but the end of the story is, is that, you know, it may be wiser to invest that money where I'll have a better return initially, and then we can come back and revisit it depending on the timing and the amount of money I have at that time. So that's one of the things I help bring out as trivia to say, oh, by the way, you may think it's really cool and you're going to be a billionaire, but the statistics are this. And that's when we kind of reframe the discussion to say, maybe that's not so important anymore. Right. So when is a good time to get a patent, in your opinion? I guess we can use that as a framework. Well, the, the, the better question, I think, to ask or the easier question to ask is when should I start talking about whether a patent is appropriate for me or not? And, and so I think any founder that is uh, has an idea that could be patentable or slash that with may infringe upon an existing patent. And so when you're talking about 20 years of technology, we're going back, you know, like yesterday, Facebook crashed. 
Facebook hasn't been around that long. And so the concept just for Facebook alone, the social media thing, odds are there's some pretty heavy social media patents that are still live that could be asserted against a new founder. And so uh, the end of the game is, is let's look at both offense and defense so that we don't step on anybody with the Nike swoosh or the McDonald's arches or somebody that has a patent so that we don't tick off somebody as we try to save a little bit money and maybe be thinking about what can we patent down the road if we want to go that way. So that's the easier question to ask because um, you know, after talking with me, a patent attorney, uh, maybe y'all, we can kind of figure out what's best for your strategy, both now and down the road and kind of time it out. What are some of the alternative options that you typically suggest? Well, let's, let's use that on software. You know, software is really a unique area of patenting, I think, because the lifespan of, of, of software is so short, especially like for phone apps, you know, by the time you pay a bunch of developers and develop the, you know, the next game that's really exciting, it takes off, you know, the, the market may be moving on and, you know, your patent is still lagging behind. And, you know, two years after your market has just evaporated, you know, you get your patent and you say, wow, where's, where's the financial benefit that I was looking to derive from, you know, paying all this money? And it may not be there. And so, um, you know, I think it's really important to look at things like, and, you know, this is worthy of a good uh, patent attorney conversation of, you know, copyrights or someplace that you can document your code and say, this is what I wrote and generated, just like a book or a movie script or anything else. You can document that in a copyright um, and people can potentially find it, although it's pretty awkward. And so uh, the nice thing is, is that you can actually document exactly what you have in your code. Or if you really wanted to, you could take your same idea and file for a what's known as a provisional patent application. PPA is how a lot of inventors refer to them. And it's just kind of a ticket to the uh, entrance of a business, so to speak. And that business is the USPTO. And you can document all your ideas, put it in this uh, you know, electronic submission and file it on the internet. And it's in, it's cost you maybe under 150 bucks. And you've documented your idea. You may never do anything with it, but nobody will ever lays eye, lay, lay eyes on it. And so the importance of that is, is that if you should decide to get a patent later, you know, you have some, you know, intellectual property protection. Your idea is locked up safe at the USPTO. And so uh, those things are really important. But, you know, I, I think the biggest bang for the buck when it comes to software companies that's overlooked is what's known as trade secrets. And trade secrets say that what stays in your head has 100% value. And so if you have a new idea for code and you don't tell anybody and you don't write it down and put it on your desk on a sticky note, you know, who else is going to figure that out? You know, in 100 years from now, they might be able to break into your brain and read it and say, oh, this is that great idea you had. But, you know, that's pretty unrealistic. And so as long as you don't blab about your idea and you keep it in your head, that's 100% of that idea's valuation right there. And so the more of it you can keep there, the higher the value will be. A lot of uh, companies find value in getting uh, investors coming in or companies that may want to buy them. And so one of the things that always catches their attention or they may even specifically ask about is, do you have a patent? And so if the answer is yes, or you can say, yes, I have a, a patent pending, uh, you know, that can be anything and we can get into that later. Um, and so saying that is another check mark saying, wow, they've got something that they think is pretty novel and may have a future value that we can keep people out of our little walled garden 
in the future, you know, this revenue stream we're hoping to develop. And so just saying literally the word patent, quote unquote, catches a lot of people's attention. And most people won't know the different connotations of what that word can take on. And, and that can even go up to, I've known people that have been on Shark Tank. And in general, uh, minus Mark Kuban, um, they generally don't appreciate what patents, the nuances of various patents are. And so if I say patent pending, but I just have a provisional patent application, you, 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 know, you may not say, wow, that's really cool. You might say, well, he only has this patent application that he filed for 150 bucks himself on the USPTO in the middle of the night. And that's not worth hardly anything uh, versus having a patent application that's going to be issued as a utility patent tomorrow. And it's the third one we've had. Um, now, all of a sudden, that's a whole different ballgame. But just saying the word patent is what usually catches people's attention, whether they be sophisticated. Uh, an investor is a primary use case. If you're trying to bring on an investor and you have a patent application pending, they say, hmm, well, that's going to catch my attention really fast and may make the difference between whether you get my money or not. Um, but ultimately, um, I always think about bragging rights. If you can say with your company that you have a what <laughs> I've seen in the physical sense is that you walk into a business and they literally have all these patents as plaques on the wall that you walk in and you look at in the lobby and you say, wow, they've got a lot of patents. That's pretty cool. I have no idea what they are, but they've got a bunch of patents. Um, you, you never see those same companies, or at least I never have, that have plaques for every copyright, trademark, trade secret, and all these other things that they've done to protect their intellectual property, I hope. Um, but nonetheless, those have, uh, in many cases, as much or more value uh, for some companies than the patent does. Mm -hmm. Well, and that's a great opener to talk about the difference between a copyrighted trademark and a patent. So what's a great overview of that? So a patent uh, can cover two different things because there are two different patents in the United States. One is a utility patent, which covers a a functional benefit type thing, like a better car tire, a windshield wiper, uh, a better way to potentially code or use a program, a phone app, in other words. So, so that could be potentially a, a utility patent. But there's also these things known as patents that are one of these nuances that I was alluding to earlier that are design patents. Apple Computer is a heavy user of design patents because they have a lot of things that look the way they do because it ties into their ecosystem, just like the iPhone design patent years ago. They just say patent. They don't say how many design patents they have. They have a patent. And so it covers the look of an iPhone. It, it unfortunately has been in litigation with Samsung forever. So uh, there's a whole big case story there that's long beyond uh, what I'm capable of talking about. But nonetheless, those are the two nuances for uh, patents. You know, in the United States, we also have trademarks, and, and I think most of the world does, to my knowledge. And so trademarks are something that identify either, you know, a founder's company, which I think is really important to say, this is my company and no one's going to cyber squat on my name or present themselves as my company name, because uh, that would take away my value and cause market confusion. So the way they can do that is, you know, have a trademark picking on poor McDonald's again. They might want to have a logo that, that has the golden arches on it, and that's the image that they want to convey. And no words are necessary. Everybody in the world's going to know that is McDonald's hamburgers. And that's exactly the way that McDonald's would like it to be. But the other part of that is that they probably have a logo. I'm sorry, in addition to logo marks, their word mark, McDonald's. 
in the food service hamburger sandwich arena of trademarks is McDonald's. And they'll probably guard that, you know, judiciously against anybody that serves food that has the word McDonald's in their name to make sure that the market never gets confused about who's their product and somebody else that just happens to have McDonald's in their name. And so those are trademarks, you know, two different ones, a visual and a word aspect or the two combined. And then you have the copyrights. Copyrights aren't really leveraged, I don't think, enough. They're really cheap to implement. You can submit them in mass um, if you want to. And copyrights protect works of art, such as, you know, your writing. We referred to writing uh, in the word, uh, the context of uh, coding earlier. And so you could literally submit the code in Python or C++ for uh, your next great idea and get a copyright on it. I'm not saying that's a good idea or a bad idea. It's just a method that's possibly available to you. But you could also copyright service manuals, uh, perhaps even uh, you know your business cards, um, your website. Um, all kinds of things can be covered under copyrights. And even though they're kind of boring and they don't cost much and no one really talks about them, if somebody cyber squats uh, on you or steals your service manual, which I've heard of real examples of, uh, taking a complete service manual, putting a new name on it and saying that was their service manual, you can go after them. And there's a lot of you know fire to that. Um, Oracle is a software provider and they've been in court, I think, was at uh, SAP, perhaps fighting over copyrights and codes. You know, no, that code was mine. And no, it was, you know, we had fair use, et cetera. And so it, it gives you another piece of ammunition in your arsenal to say, I can potentially go after them, you know, with these kinds of things. And you can say, uh, that was a trade secret, copyright, trademark, patent, on and on, and say, we can, uh, you know, go after that infringer with these kinds of things and maybe defeat them or not. But at least we have various things available to us. And that's ultimately the value of intellectual property is just like in finance, having a portfolio that is well-balanced, that meets your needs in the near term and the long terms, not too expensive, but is just right to get you the things that you need, including defense of your product name, uh, all these different things that you can protect. And so there's a balancing factor in all that. Yeah, we talked about, we've mentioned provisional patents and products and whatnot. So as a case study, as it were, you've got someone who's developed this physical good, uh, you know, electronic good uh, that they put all the engineering into, the design, etc. What would you suggest their path forward be? Um, or maybe maybe you say there's a, there. I would suggest something else before you even put in the time to, you know, produce this physical product if they want to go to market with it, whether that's doing a Kickstarter, trying to, you know, go and sell it. Um, as someone looking at the you know risk mitigation, the intellectual property side of things, and, and patents, of course, what would that look like um, as a maybe best strategy for someone in that position? Well, there, there's a lot of different opinions uh, on this subject, and it's a big subject. So uh, our own methodology is, is that uh, we try to make data-driven decisions. And one of the data points that we like to get if the idea is potentially like one space that we deal in a lot is intellectual property. And so if there's potential that there could be patent infringement involved with that new idea going forward, it's worth just from the risk standpoint, the risk aversion standpoint of going in and looking to see what live patents in those countries like the U.S., uh, for instance, that are still live that may come back to haunt you 
um, you know, knowing that before you move forward and saying, um, yeah, I've got this next great idea, but then you get sued by a large behemoth. Let's just pick on Amazon. They're very sensitive about software. They're in the space in a big way. They have attorneys, they have lots of money. Um, and so um, they have lots of reasons to go after people that they think might be infringing. And that's not a right or wrong statement. That's just their their option. So start with that research. Yeah, yeah. And so if you have research and it says, wow, Amazon has three patents that are pretty close to mine and they're live. Um, wow, that may be a big game changer. And for some companies, it should be, and it is. And so knowing that information that you didn't have before can make and break the difference between moving forward with an invention. And so one of the things that I often see is people or companies come to me and they say, hey, we've just developed this product and we want to see if it's patentable. And it's like, oh my gosh, I'm just ringing up the cash register in my head about how much money they paid coders and prototypers and designers and all these things that have happened internally and externally uh, to get to that point. And now they're going to find out if they're infringing or whether they have a patenting opportunity. Um, so the, the strategy wasn't as forthcoming as I would have preferred. Um, normally, I very much prefer to get somebody when they have the napkin idea and it's written out in enough detail that I could appreciate what they have. And we can go in and say, wow, there's a lot of traffic in this area and it's new and live. Uh, you might want to watch out for how you proceed. And I have a number of clients that just say, uncle, I'm done. I don't want to go there. And that's great. It used to really bother me a lot that I was raining on people's parades. But I got to realizing that I have just saved them uh, a lot of money and aggravation from going down a very cumbersome road. And, and the great thing that's really important to me is that most inventors have a huge Rolodex, if you will, uh, of ideas. And so number one just went out the window. Uh, that just means they go to number two, number three, number four. And so uh, what was really bothering me initially, I got to realizing I'm really doing them a big favor and they'll just go to their next idea, which is great. That was the whole purpose behind it to begin with. Yeah. So, you know, do the research. Would you suggest doing a provisional patent, you know, as a once you've got enough of, you know, the product, you know, uh, pretty confident nothing else is going to be a concern. You get the product to a point where you kind of have a, a lock on what it should be. Um, would you go then then do a provisional patent before you go and you know put it on the market, et cetera, et cetera? Well, there's certainly a, a deep conversation to be had with an intellectual property attorney. Some of the things that need to be discussed are that if you file a provisional patent application, that could influence whether you're able to get uh, cleanly, at least, uh, a European or a country's uh, patent application started because they might consider that a disclosure. And so if it's considered a disclosure outside of the United States, let's pick on our neighbor Canada to the north, for instance. It, uh, I believe that they, they fall into this uh, same method that the, most of the world uses, that the day it's disclosed to the public, like at a conference in my worst case example earlier, that, that is the day that you can no longer file a patent application on that idea, assuming that you disclosed it in full context, everything that they needed to know to, to walk away and do that, whatever it is. Even even if you have you know prior documentation or something like that, or like you were the one disclosing it, so clearly you know if you have that disclosure moment, you should get the patent because you were the one who did it. But they're saying that you don't. Well, in, in the the old way of doing uh, the patents in the United States is that the person that first to invent 
an idea, would write down in their inventor's notebook and talk with their attorney, and they would be documenting dates and having witnesses. And that was the mark of time. So ultimately, uh, the things that you need to be thinking about are, um, if I'm going to really protect this idea, uh, how am I going to do it? And more importantly, if this idea is really as valuable as I think it is inside of my head, then shouldn't I invest a little bit of money and be thinking about how to protect it as I speak in front of a conference, knowing that I should probably document those things before I do it? Um, and the reason is, is that uh, the part B of my comment is that in today's USPTO, the first to file system is in effect. And so the first person to document that they have filed a patent application um, at the USPTO is the one that gets to claim that that idea is theirs, not the person that filed it on the next day or the day after that. And is that separate than the provisional patent or is that including the provisional patent? So because the provisional patent is obviously quite a bit cheaper than a, a full uh, utility patent. Yeah, assuming that a provisional patent application makes sense, then yes, that is a documentation of on that day I had this idea. And so it's a, a great, uh, to me, uh, a great fill in the gap. Uh, I'm going to speak to investors tomorrow about my idea. Um, they won't sign a non-disclosure agreement. You know, investors are notoriously uh, famous for not doing that. So maybe I can protect my idea with this provisional patent application. And and so uh, long story short, an attorney may not agree with me, and that's fine. That's what they do. But at least you have something more than what you had before you walked in and talked to those investors. And it's as much disclosure as you can put in there. You filed it yourself. It may not be right. It may not be wrong. But at least you have something that can eventually come back and say, hey, you have stolen my idea. But more importantly, you can tell the investors, hey, I am patent pending. Right. And so to brand something as patent pending, is that dependent on having a provisional patent or are there other ways to do that? Yeah, yeah, no, that, that's a, fuel, a, a legal use case for patent pending is that you have a provisional or non-provisional patent application on file somewhere in the world. It doesn't have to be in the U.S. I've seen cases like uh, in Japan. I did some research here about a year ago um, where somebody thought that this product was patented and, and they just knew it was. And I was like... I don't know where it is. And so I did research in all kinds of places. And eventually I found a Japanese design patent that was getting close to expiring. It had been filed years ago. Uh, that was what they said that they had a patent on. And so it actually turned out they were true. However, it didn't matter to anybody else because it was in another country. It was a very specific design. So no, it didn't matter. But until then, they had the bravado to say, hey, we have a patent. And everybody else is like, what is it? What does it cover? We don't know. Steve couldn't find it first. He, he found it later, but wow, what is it? And so that uh, kind of nuance keeps uh, your competitors off their feet. Yeah. And, uh, In the same vein, what are the the legal requirements to be able to put the the little trademark symbol, the TM or the the R? I think I think there's an SM too, isn't there? Now that's that uh, trademarks and service marks are TM and SM. And so for me as a service provider, I would use an SM, a service mark. But but in essence, everybody generally refers to everything as trademarks. Um, and so TM is generally what you would see. Um, on my own website, I have uh, helping companies look before they leap. And so I have a little TM after that. And it just says, hey, I'm using this as a part of my business services to say, 
this is what I provide. You may not appreciate it or understand it. doesn't matter. If you copy it, I'm using it as a part of my business. Uh, buyer beware. Uh, does it have any legal teeth? It's pretty small. Uh, but but if I if I stepped up my game and registered it at the USPTO and went through the trademarking process and six months to a year later, I wound up with a a circle R or a registered trademark, then it would say on my website, you know, that same slogan with a circle R. And that means, hey, I actually took the time and money to invest to say this is mine and no one else's. And so I can use that as a much bigger uh, bite out of their cash flow, you know, should I wish to assert it against them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, assuming you want to, uh, you know, spend the time and money to assert that. But. So you can put a TM on something if you're confident it's yours and you don't have to file anything to claim it as yours. That's right. It's a TM. That's cool. Yeah, you're just, it's just a trademark. That's, that's something I do. And I, just so you know, uh, this is one of the many things that entrepreneurs and founders can think about is that that may be completely sufficient for their business, especially in the early stages. And so an entrepreneur, um, I literally have a spreadsheet of slogans for trade uh, marks and services that I provide. And so there are all kinds of ideas written down and it's literally hundreds of words and lines long. And so for me, I, I, I felt that it really wasn't worth my time to register as a trademark um, because one, if somebody wants to borrow it, you know, it's not that big a deal. I'm just going to go to my next line and my next line and next line because no one really cares in my particular case that that mark is there versus something else. And so it's not worth a whole lot of money to me. If one of our listeners wanted to chat with you to look before they left, how would one do that? <laughs> well, certainly they can reach out to me via uh, your blog uh, or your podcast or uh, your website or my website, which is Pearson, P-E-A-R-S-O-N, strategy.com. And all my regular contact information is there. Uh, but certainly I'm all over, uh, you know, LinkedIn and various places. So it shouldn't be too hard to find me in Austin, Texas. There's uh, not a whole lot of people with my name, but uh, even fewer in the world doing what I do, which is most people know me as a patent researcher, basically, is what it boils down to. Do you regularly publish content anywhere to point people to? or You know, uh, I used to push out a newsletter uh, via email, and I'm kind of wrapping that up. It got to the point that... Uh, I felt like I was always pushing to make sure I captured everything, run it through my editor, generate a professional looking newsletter and send it out. And it just was uh, too cumbersome, too uh, expensive. And so now I actually have a Pearson strategy uh, company page uh, where people can follow me. And so I try to keep that as the, uh, the primary focus of my outgoing message. Um, certainly, I publish things under my own Pearson strategy, uh, my, my LinkedIn profile. Uh, but that may be a little bit more personal about random things. Uh, but now that company page on LinkedIn is uh, my primary vehicle for getting our word out. Well, hey, Steve, it's been been fun and cool. I learned a lot. Well, I really enjoyed it. And uh, I greatly appreciate you both, uh, one, asking me to do this, but uh, two, uh, having the patience and great questions that kind of lead me through the process. That's just wonderful. I really appreciate it. Of course, it's what we love to do. And uh, we want to find good meaningful information for for founders that are trying to ultimately do what we're talking about right so uh, it's definitely very very helpful information thank you so much for coming on and uh, probably talk again awesome well i'll look forward to that thank you both very much 
Thanks again to Steve for coming on the show. Complex but essential stuff for founders to know about. Thanks to all our listeners. We appreciate every single one of you guys. If you like the show, tell us by subscribing wherever you listen. You can also reach out on Twitter using hashtag FoundersForge or DM me directly at GoodOD. That's G-O-O-D-E-O-D. If you're interested in being on the show, check out the show notes for all the relevant info. We're always looking for interesting people and companies to talk to. Big, small, weird? Drop us a line. Let's chat. Also, if you're a domain specialist like Steve is, let's get you on too. All right, we'll see you guys next week.